Hello and welcome to another episode of the Game Alone's podcast and another episode of the Monday Mortgage Melt where I share the audio from my Q&A that I do every Monday afternoon at 5pm over on my Instagram channel where I answer your questions live. In this episode, we actually get quite philosophical. It's a bit diff- different from the normal just property finance type questions. There are a few in there. But there's a lot to do with kind of running businesses. Um, there's a question about um, about whether or not you should use a mentor, all this kind of stuff. I definitely get a bit philosophical, definitely jump on the old soapbox from time to time, as I tend to do. Um, so it's a really interesting episode, and I really hope that you enjoy it. If you have any questions on anything that's discussed in this episode, please make sure that you go over and follow me on Instagram and send me a direct message, and I will come back to you on that but i'll shut up for now hope you enjoy this episode um, of the monday mortgage melt and the game alone hello everybody welcome to episode 84 of the monday mortgage melt yes what a beautiful start to the week we've had an amazing uh weekend where it's been really hot and as you can see my face is very red because i've been out in the sunshine all weekend and got a little bit of a little red tinge on my face, as I've just realised. Yo, 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 TX, what is going on? Cool, so, uh, welcome everybody to the Monday Mortgage Melt. I am here, if the sound isn't brilliant, I apologise, I've got no idea where my AirPods are, um, because I've been away for the weekend, and hopefully I haven't left them in Burnham-on-Sea, because that would be a bit crap. Um, But I am here, hopefully you can hear me okay, and we've got a uh, Saracen's mug, obviously, with a cup of coffee to keep us going because I feel today might be a bit of a late one for me uh, because our remote server has been down all day. So I've basically got to start work about an hour ago and do a whole day's worth of work. So I might be might finish about two in the morning. That'd be fun, wouldn't it? Um, yeah, especially when Emily, when Emily, my wife, wants to crack on with a new series of Bridgerton. Um, so... You know, we'll we'll figure it out. The life, the life of a business owner, the life of a business owner. But welcome everybody. Thank you ever so much for joining me on this lovely sunny um, Monday afternoon. As per usual, Monday Mortgage Melt. We've been doing this for eighty four weeks on the trot. And if this is your first time on the live, where have you been? Um, but if it hasn't, if it isn't, you will know exactly what we are doing here. Today is your opportunity to ask me anything you like with regards to property investing, property finance, running a business, whatever you like. Uh, we call it the Monday Mortgage Melt because I love a bit of alliteration. I am, you know, a mortgage broker and it started off really as a mortgage Q&A, but it has expanded over the last 84 weeks um, that we have been doing this. So any questions that you've got, do feel free to ask. Now, a bit of housekeeping before we kick off is if you do want to ask a question, please put it down in, not in the comments down here, but in the question box down here. The reason for that is because as you can see, people like Flynn, Tom, James, Kem, they're joining the live at the moment. And what will happen is as more people join the live, um, if you put your question in the comment, it's just going to keep getting pushed up and up and up and up. And eventually I'm going to lose it and I might forget it. And I don't want to forget it because all your questions are always so bloody good. So put it down in the question box here. It will mean that I cannot miss it because whenever I click on it, it will bring up all the questions that have been answered so far. And as you'll see in a minute, when I get the first question up, I'll be able to bring it actually on the screen. So not only will you guys be able to see the question, just in case I misread it or something like that, but also um, those that are joining will actually have a bit of context when they join the live as to what we're actually speaking about at this time. And talking about getting people to join the live 
If you are um, enjoying this as we go along, keep hitting the little heart button down in the bottom right hand corner because it tells Instagram it's a good live. Hopefully it'll push it out to more people. The more people we get on, the better questions we're gonna have, the more opportunity we have to discuss some really awesome topics. So make sure as we go along, just keep hitting the heart button every time I say something that isn't stupid, basically. <laughs> um, Cheers, guys. Um, now, just very quickly, let me do a little intro to myself so that you actually know who I am and, and why you might actually want to listen to some of the advice that I'm going to hopefully give. It's not advice, actually. It's not, not technically advice. I need to say that. The FCA will be crawling all over me. Nothing I'm selling, telling you today is official advice, okay, guys? I'll give you my opinion on things. Uh, my name's Sam. I am the owner and director of Grand Union Finance, a specialist mortgage and property finance brokerage that helps you guys, the investors and developers of the UK, fund your projects, be it a buy-to-let mortgage all the way up to really top-end development finance, commercial mortgages, bridging loans. Many of you will see that I, uh, I like to wear my I Love Bridging Finance t-shirt quite frequently, much to Mrs. Norris's dismay because she hates it when I look silly and she thinks I look silly in that t-shirt. So there we go. Well, they're talking to t-shirts, I've got this one on today, which is one of my favourites. Um, I'm a big Marvel fan, so I couldn't help myself. Um, so yeah, that is me. I've been in the game 15 years, people. So hopefully, whatever questions you have, I will be able to answer. But um, what I do to kick things off is first and foremost, if I've had any uh, questions that have come through from my story earlier on, so I usually run a story at some point in the early in the morning or afternoon on, the, on a Monday, and I put a priority question box on there. If anyone did have any priority questions, they're the ones that I will start with. Um, so we'll kick off in two seconds. Just gonna take a quick sip of coffee to, uh, to get me going. Let's put that down there. Okay, let's get going. Let's get a rock in. So question so far from um, Ulu, I think it is. Um, is it possible to buy a property as a privately owned and then convert into a rental property? Um, okay, great. Really, really good question to kick us off with. Um, let me make sure it's definitely come up on the screen. Hopefully everyone can see it and hopefully everyone can hear me, okay? Um, so, yeah. So basically, there's a couple of things to unpackage here, which let's talk firstly about um, going from residential to buy-to-let. Um in terms of from a regulatory point of view. And then let's talk about physically how that then happens, okay? So when you buy on a property, if it is your intention to uh, buy it as a residential property, but you have intention to potentially rent it out in the future, you should technically make the lender aware that this is something that you wanna do. Now, if it's you know gonna be years and years in the future, maybe, maybe not, but theoretically you should. And the reason for that, is down to regulation. Now, when you buy a property that you're gonna live in and you're taking out a mortgage, um, that mortgage that you take out on your residential home is regulated by the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority, the main governing body in the UK for anything financial, okay? If you take out a buy-to-let mortgage, we call it unregulated. It is regulated, it's just not regulated by the FCA. It's regulated by the PRA, the Prudential Regulatory Authority, and they're in charge of things like buy-to-let mortgages and bridging loans and development finance and commercial mortgages and that sort of thing because the kind of regulation that will be good for um, a 
uh, a residential mortgage won't necessarily match up to you know a buy to let mortgage and so on and so forth so they try and they try and sort of make it a little bit different and actually it is a good thing um because the fsa's regulation is very stringent as it should be for a residential mortgage because don't forget people as hard as it is to get a residential mortgage in this country when you compare it to america or france or wherever um our system is infinitely safer than theirs okay the security in this country is very much to do with making sure that you as residential mortgage owners are looked after okay which is why it takes a bit longer there are certainly things that we can do in this market to speed up this process and i am constantly looking at ways of doing that um and and trying to influence lenders to look at these kind of things but ultimately it isn't the quickest uh, process in the world but a lot of that is because lenders are made by the FCA to look out for you. And that's so, so, so important. So we should be really, really proud that in this country, we have a mortgage system the way that it is, because it's one of the safest and securest in the world, if not the safest and securest. I, do you know what? I would literally, if I had a hack right now, I would hang it on the fact that our mortgage market is the safest and best in the whole wide world. So off my soapbox on that, it's definitely, definitely a positive that residential mortgages are looked after by the FCA. It's also a positive that the, the non-residential mortgages are not looked after by the FCA and they're looked after by the PRI. Now, going back to um, Ulu's question, which is all to do with um, buying a property as a residential um, home and then at some point in the future, maybe renting it out, because this is where there's a bit of a gray area because theoretically speaking, FCA regulation should cover not only a property that you do live in, but any property that you have lived in or an immediate family member has lived in as well. So you might be scratching your heads now going, Sam, well, hang on a second. So what you're saying is if, if I choose in the future to rent out my home, then I can't get a buy to let mortgage. Kind of. That's kind of the answer. You can, but it falls under a different category. It falls under something we call a consumer buy to let okay and this is what i was coming going to come on to is the second part of this question which is how does this actually work so we need to refinance the property so you need to get consent to let from your existing existing uh mortgage lender you can you can start making preparations to bring somebody in you can start um making prep set, uh, preparations to move all that kind of stuff um and you can even you know maybe even uh, get the property on the market for for rental as well which would really really help um then what we need to do is go through the process of, of refinancing this property. But in, instead of going from a residential mortgage to another residential mortgage, we go through a residential mortgage to this thing we call a consumer buy to let mortgage. Or if you're going to be buying a property, uh, another new home could be come up, fall under uh, what we call a let to buy. So these are the two kind of categories, both of which can be the consumer buy to lets definitely are the let to buys mostly are. FCA regulated buy to let loans and they're these weird sort of little mini bits in the middle that don't quite fall into the black and white regulated unregulated loans okay so just to make it a little bit more tricky for you all so that's the thing that you need to be need to be aware of is that you might not just be able to go to any old buy to let lender and and do this so for, I'll give you an example recently um, we had a, a client who um, has moved out of her property 11 years ago and it just so happened that the lender that came top of the tree in terms of pricing and the best best lender for her, once I'd done my research, um, I spoke to them, went through the whole thing with them and just said, look, you know, we're just looking to refinance. I'm just going through it. She's not lived in there for 11 years. And they turned around, they said, even though she hasn't lived there for 11 years, it's still a consumer buy to let and we do not do consumer buy to lets. 
So we were unable to use them, um, which was really, really, really frustrating because there is, if you ask a lot of brokers and a lot of lenders, they will kind of say to you, you do get to a point where you haven't lived in the property for a certain period of time. And most lenders just won't consider it a consumer buy to let or an FCA regulated buy to let anymore. So it's kind of like, you know, how long's a piece of string? There's no real, that there is hard and fast regulation about it, but lenders sometimes ignore it um, and, you know, make a judgment call. So it's a bit of a tricky one, basically. So, um, so yeah, so uh, Ulu, Wafimi, um, hopefully that answered your question. Hopefully you guys found that really helpful as well. It is something that we do a lot of. I, I speak to a lot of clients that are, that are refinancing their home to a buy to let so they can move out and do that. In fact, I've got loads of clients that that's how they build their portfolio. They basically buy somewhere, they live in it, they do a little bit of like sort of minor renovations and stuff. Um, they might sit on it for two to five years, then they will refinance it onto a buy to let, they'll move out and they'll, they'll pull some cash out and they'll, they'll, they'll repeat the process and they'll up you know, um, they'll buy another home for themselves. And in fact, I've got one client who the first property ever owned, which is a long time ago now, was a one bedroom flat above a Chinese takeaway in Putney. Um, was it Putney or like Clapham? South London area, basically. Um, and he now lives in a four million pound five bed house in Barnes, which is a really nice place in Southwest London. Um, and he's done that by being what we call a live-in developer. And um, and now he has a really nice mortgage with a private bank. Happy days, he's done it well. In fact, I think he lives on the same road as Gary Barlow used to, or still does, I'm not sure. But um, yeah, he's doing well. And that's that's a really great example of someone that's a live-in developer, someone that's that's constantly buying a home for themselves, doing a little bit of renovation, letting the market, you know, grow the value of that property, refinancing it onto a buy to let and moving out and doing and repeating that process. And he's built a nice portfolio of properties, probably got, I think he's got five properties in his portfolio now, makes a nice tidy sum from it. So if he can do it, you can do it too. Um, so great first question to kick us off with. Um, Ilian said, hola everyone, hola Ilian. I don't know why I just did that. That's not that's not a, a, a sort of pose that you do when you say hola, is it? Anyway, it's more like that. There we go. Um, so yes, just as a bit of a um, a bit of a reset for for the live. Anyone that's just joined, thank you so much for joining. Um, we are going through our Q and A at the moment. If you do have a question for me concerning anything to do with any kind of finance, mortgages, bridging finance, etc., 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 or anything to do with um, property investing in general, or to be honest with you, you can ask me anything you like. I don't really mind. I'll probably answer it. Um, please stick it down into the question box down here, not in the comments down here, because as people are jumping in, um, like Ilian did, and her little little uh, comment there, um, as nineteen NM joined, Gavin's just joined. Um, your question will get pushed up and we will lose it. So um, yeah, don't do that. Stick it in the question box down here. And if you're enjoying the answers to these questions, please keep hitting the like button down, the little heart down here, just tells Instagram that we're doing a good job. Also, if you're coming in late, um, fingers crossed, I will be able to download this video later on and upload it to the Game Alone's podcast tomorrow morning. Um, if you don't listen to the Game Alone's podcast, you should, um, because I have an amazing guest on every single week. Last week, we had TJ Atkinson talking all about rent to rent and how he's converted from being a rent to rent rock star into being a full-time property investor. He also happens to be one of my clients, which is really awesome that we get to have, uh, I get to ask my own clients to come on and be guests on my podcast. So absolutely awesome. And TJ's a fascinating and very, very interesting person to have a nice chat with. So if you haven't listened to that episode yet, 
just type in Game Alone's podcast into iTunes, Spotify, whatever platform you prefer, and you will find it. And don't forget, if you, if you haven't been on there, um, write a five-star review once you do. Um, that would really help me out, so thanks. Right, let's get on to the questions, because you haven't come here just to li- listen to me talk gibberish. Um, so let's go to, oh, bloody hell, we've got loads. Um, Alistair Park Hill, uh, for a first-time investor with a bridging comp- will a bridging company be more inclined to lend to you if you are beginning with a flip? rather than a buy to let assume they see a flip as less risk that is a really good question this is the first time anyone's asked this question actually sorry not all of it's on on the page but you obviously heard what i said so the gist of what alistair's asked here is for a first-time investor will a bridging company see you as lesser risk if you get going for a flip or a buy to let the answer that is it doesn't really matter either way the most important thing is is that you have an exit strategy that is relatively sound, okay? So what I mean by that is an exit strategy to the loan. How are we going to pay off the loan? Because don't forget, if you take out a mortgage, um, a mortgage is a long-term financial arrangement. It actually means till death. Mortgage means till death in uh, Latin, amazingly, okay? There's a long-term, long-term strategy. Lenders are willing to give you that money and they know if it's a residential mortgage, you're gonna pay it off over 25 years, 30 years, whatever. And if it's a buy to net mortgage, you know, you'll pay it off in 25 years at the end of the end of the term, um, you know, by selling the property or something like that. So they're not concerned. As long as you can make those monthly payments, they're not concerned. Bridging lenders, it's short term, it's nine, 12, 18 months. And they need to know that they're gonna be able to get their money back because lending you the money is one thing, getting it back is something entirely different. Um, I've got a really, really good track record. Only in, only recently have we had an issue with getting a, a bridge re, repaid on time. Um, I've literally got one in a thousand that hasn't been paid on time and there's a very good reason for that, which was not the client's fault, not my fault, not the lender's fault. It was just the way that it was, unfortunately, and we're, we're working on that. But. Um, Effectively, they just want to know that they can get their money back on time with their interest, etc. So there we've discussed the two main exit strategies that we'll be looking at. It will either be to sell the property, are you going to flip it? You're going to do it, you're going to buy it, you're going to do it up, you're going to sell it. Um, simple as that. The other is BRR, buy, refurbish, refinance. You're going to buy it, you're going to refurbish it, and you, then you're going to refinance it onto a buy select mortgage. So generally speaking, we want more than one exit strategy that we're going to put to a lender. So we, if, if your plan is to flip it, we can say we can flip it, Mr. Bridging Lender or Mrs. Bridging Lender, let's not be sexist here. Um, and if that doesn't quite work or we're, we're, we're struggling and we're getting to the end of the term, we can actually do a buy-to-let mortgage on this and here's why. Um, the flip side, if buy-to-let mortgage is our preferred exit strategy, our preferred repayment method, then again, we can explain why. Now, the reason, the only reason, Alistair, that actually a lender might have a preference for a flip over a buy-to-let mortgage is if it's going to be particularly difficult for a, um, a borrower to get a buy-to-let mortgage. So you actually, actually where, what this comes down to is how easy is it going to get to, um, is it going to be to either sell or get a buy-to-let mortgage? If the sales market isn't very good, but the mortgage market is really, really good, then lenders are probably going to see refinancing as lower risk. If the if the, the it's it's a difficult property to refinance, or the client has, or the, the the borrower has not that much experience, and it makes it more difficult to get a buy to let mortgage, then the flip might actually be the preferred option from a from a lender. But to be honest with you, I would cover off both as a broker when speaking to a lender anyway. Okay, so 
We've got, um, if, we're, if, we, if we're going down the route and we have to sort of say to a lender, well, one of the options we're gonna look at is a buy-to-let mortgage. What I would be doing to show them, they don't necessarily need to see like a decision in principle or anything like that, but I can go back to them and say, right, here are the criteria points that most lenders are gonna be looking at. Number one, is he a homeowner? Yes, he is. Okay, so great. Um, the next one would be, um, does, he, does he fulfill most minimum income requirements? So he, own, he earns 25,000 pound plus a year. Great, so he's ticking two boxes there in terms of giving us full market access. Let's look at the property now. How much are we gonna need to borrow based on what we think the GDV is gonna be? That's the value of the property once the work has been completed. We're looking at 75% of that. Let's do a rental calculator on that figure to see whether the rent that is likely to be achieved is sufficient enough to hit that amount. If the answer to that is yes, and there are no restrictions on that either, because there are variations. If we use a standard um, rental calculator, and if you don't know what the standard rental calculator is, go onto my YouTube channel and scroll down a little way and you will see a video all about how to work out how much you can borrow. I think it's got a blue background on the thumbnail and I go onto my whiteboard, which is just over there, and I go through examples of how this works. So we do our rental calculator, and basically, if we tick those three boxes and the client's got good credit and the property's not gonna fall down and it's in a good area and it's not a flood risk and, and all that, that kind of stuff, then generally speaking, a lender is gonna see that we have been really um, quite watertight with our exit strategy on that. And that's what bridging lenders are looking for. I'll let you in onto a little secret. And whenever I tell this story, it sounds like a brag because it's a good excuse to tell you that I was shortlisted for an award. I didn't win the award. So actually, it's not a brag at all. But um, about... How long ago was it? Five years ago, I think. Um, I was shortlisted for. Um, by the way, I don't. I I I got went through a phase of like trying to win an award, and I kind of got to the point where I can't be bothered anymore because the people that win the awards basically are the ones that sponsor the events. <laughs> so cynical. Um, no, they all very much deserve it, and they're, they're fantastic winners. But I was shortlisted for um, bridging broker of the year about four or five years ago, and I went into uh, to my. Uh, that, that was a final three, and I was um, sitting there with three of the uh, you know biggest names in the bridging world. Uh, it was Mark Posniak, who is the director at Octane Capital. We had Richard Deacon. Uh, he at the time was the say I think um, managing director of Masthaven, who annoyingly have stopped lending now, which is a bit strange. Got a banking license a few years ago. Now they don't want to lend anymore. Um, and Tomar, who is the who is the owner of MT Finance, one of my favourite lenders, um, and I knew them all really, really well. And I just go in and, and sit down and have an interview with three people that like I've shared beers with and, and stuff. It was a bit weird, but one of the they actually said to me afterwards that one of the reasons why the guy that won won was that he'd been nominated for like three years on the trot and won, and they felt like it was about time. And I still I was young and I still had time, um, but they did say that you know I I was definitely one of the one of the better candidates, and as a result, um, it was a result of me talking so much about the exit strategy. As, as a broker that's come from a background of dealing with residential mortgages, I'm very pernickety and very um, on it when it comes to due diligence uh, of both clients and, um, you know, what, what we're basically, we pre-underwrite. Uh, before we send anything to a lender, we underwrite the case for them so that when it arrives, it should be really easy. Uh, and that's what we always aim for. So as much as I've had frustrating uh, conversations with clients over the years that have gone, why are, you, why are you taking so long to get the application in? They're happy once we actually get the application in, because generally speaking, it goes through really, really quickly. Um, and it's all, and, and when it, the reason I'm telling you this story is because those directors of those uh, bridging companies were just so happy 
that I was talking to them about exit strategy more than anything else. It's the first thing that I think about. So this is why this question from Alistair is so, so, so important to anyone that's listening to this um, that is, is looking at getting a bridging loan. If you go to a bridging lender direct, they probably won't ask you too many questions about this. They will make an assumption that you know what you're doing because ultimately at the end of the day, if you don't pay it back, you're gonna have to pay fees, you're gonna have to pay penalty interest, all this kind of stuff. And they factor that in with their pricing and, and their, risk, their risk assessment and stuff like that. But Mark Posniak, who was one of the guys that was on that um, on that panel, he recently said um, in, a, in an article that he prefers for bro for to get business via brokers rather than direct because generally speaking, the brokers that they work with really understand the, the need and the importance of the exit strategy because ultimately they don't want to repossess properties. Okay, you know, paying paying exit, you know, paying um, penalty fees and and all that kind of stuff at the end. If you don't, you know, if you don't repay within the, the, the term, it is what it is, but it takes up time for their completions department, their legal department. They don't want to repossess properties. It's not what they do. They want to lend money out and they want to get it back with their interest. So the exit strategy is sound, they're happy. So I know I, I dwelled on this for quite a long time, but I thought it was really, really worth it. Um, excellent question, Alistair, and hopefully that's answered your question. Guys, if you're enjoying any part of this, please keep hammering the little like button in the bottom corner. Brings more people into live, more people that we've got on it. Hopefully the more people that are gonna A, enjoy it, B, get educated, C, be entertained a little bit by me, hopefully. Uh, but D, most importantly, we'll get loads and loads of more questions on, um, which should help for um, a much more, much better conversation. So Tom has asked, can you please throw light on second charge mortgages for additional purposes, purchases, sorry, Absolutely. So second charges are great. Okay. Second charges are really, really good. So what I'll do before I answer this question, I will give you some insight into, no problem at all, Alistair. I'm always happy to help. Um, that was an answer and a half. TK, TK, yeah, thanks. Um, Paul, great content, matey. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, right. Let's get back to Tom's question. So um, before I talk about what second charges are, I'm gonna to talk to you about the three ways that generally speaking, in order of, of preference, you can release funds from your property, okay? So A, further advance. Now, buy-to-let further advances aren't that common, but certainly on residential properties, they are. If you bought a property back in, I don't know, 2005, something like that, you lived in it for all that all this time, and you just keep, re every time you get the end of your two or your five-year fixed rate, you just refinance it as it is. And you might, at the time, you might have bought it for 200,000 and took out 180,000 pound mortgage, but now, um, you've been paying it off. The value of the property's gone up to three hundred fifty thousand, and your and your mortgage is down at one hundred twenty thousand. Obviously, you've got a ton of equity that you can utilise now. As long as it's affordable for you to do so, you can contact your current lender and ask them if they wouldn't mind just you know just shoving you over a few more quid, you know, because you might want to use it to go and buy another property, um, you know, as an investment property or something like that. Most of them are pretty happy to do so, but they will put you through the rigors of another affordability assessment, of course. And that will, and, and whatever you can afford to borrow, they will then lend you as a further advance. Now, this isn't technically a second charge, although it is generally to another product, okay? So it will, it will fit, so you'll have your, your first mortgage product and then this one will sort of fit above. But because it's the same lender, they just have one charge. There's no second charge, it's just, it's two products on the first charge, if that makes sense. So. That's how that works. 
Um, the, the next option down is we go for a second charge. Now, if you can't get what you want um, to borrow because you found another property that you want to buy um, and the further advance doesn't cut it, we can look at a second charge. Now, second charge mortgages are a little bit more expensive. They're quite niche. They're quite um, specialist in terms of the lenders that, that offer them, but um, they will theoretically be more flexible on the affordability assessment than a standard first charge lender. Your Barclays, your NatWests, your Santander's, these second charge lenders will generally lend you a little bit more. When we're using the old kind of income multipliers, most first charge lenders, high street lenders will be capped at four, four and a half, worse, like best case scenario, probably five times your income. Some of these um, uh, second charge lenders can get to six, six and a half, which obviously is that little bit extra, which you, which could uh, make the difference basically. So um, that is why you might use it. However, they are gonna be more expensive. You know, If your first charge mortgage is 2%, the second charge is likely to be, I don't know, four, four and a half, five percent, maybe even six or seven percent, depending on the lender and your your personal circumstances and the, and the loan to value that you want to get to. OK, so that will be like our second option. And I will come back and shed a little bit of light on that as a result of Tom's question in a second. Um, and the um, the next is um, is we might look at using the equity for a bridging loan. And what I mean by that is you might be looking to raise some some funds on a second charge basis to um to put towards purchasing a a property that we were just discussing a flip a buy refurbish refinance something like that but again you're just going to make sure your exit strategy is sound so that when you do refinance or sell that property over there that you can bring the money back over and make sure that all the funding that you've you've taken out can be repaid really 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 important okay so just get back to tom's question now in terms of talking about second charge mortgages now i kind of went through quite a lot of it there um, but A, yes, you can raise them for second uh, a second charge mortgage and they are available for additional purchases. So some lenders, some first charge high street banks that are going to lend you your residential mortgage are not going to be quite that comfortable if you turn around to them and say, I'm going to use it to buy, buy a rental property with. Particularly if you're going to buy it in a limited company. They're probably going to be quite funny about that because that would probably form, for um, that would come under business purposes because you're basically putting money into a business that is going to buy a property. And, and, and by, um, residential lenders don't really like that very much, okay? So they might also want you to actually purchase the property um, sort of simultaneously with taking out that further advance, which might not necessarily be the easiest thing for you to do, potentially. You might just want the money in the bank and then go off and buy a property. Obviously, you're gonna pay, start paying interest on it as soon as you take it down, but that that potentially is, is, an, is an issue that, that could dis, become a little bit disjointed. You're not a... a, a um, you're not a cash buyer then because you are actually taking out a mortgage. Although further advances don't take as long as standard mortgages, um, but they might need a, you know, they might want a new, um, a new valuation or that kind of stuff. They will be doing re-underwriting. So, you know, it, it can still take a little bit of time. At least the legals is usually a lot quicker. Um, so, but the second charges, um, they're going to be, they're going to be much more flexible in terms of how much they can lend to you. They're going to be much more flexible in terms of what your use of the funds are, but the, 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 the drawbacks basically are A, they're going to be more expensive. Um, B, um, some first charge lenders don't like them. Um, and, and lastly, you, you want to make sure that actually you can repay them as quickly as you possibly can. And if they've got early repayment charges for the first five years, do you really want to be 
um, you know, paying 5%, 6% um, on that extra amount for that period of time. Don't forget, it's only the extra amount. So your first charge is not, is not um, doesn't change at all. You're basically still paying the 2% or whatever that you're paying on your residential mortgage. The additional bit above is where you're, where you're gonna be paying the higher amount um, but that's essentially how, how they work. Um, apart from that, the process of applying is pretty much the same as um, getting a first charge mortgage. It's just incredibly uh, swifter. It probably takes two to three weeks um, to get a second charge mortgage um, just because they don't tend to do as much due diligence um, or you know they're usually quicker quicker type lenders, maybe lenders that, are, that actually have the ability to do bridging lending as well. So their underwriters are used to speed, if that makes sense. Um, but Tom, hopefully that answered your question. Um, let me know if, um, if you have any follow-ups to that. Um, but hopefully that was helpful, guys. If it was, please, as I said, keep hammering that little heart button. Um, any of these questions, if, it, if they help, hit the heart button, um, hit the share button, send it to anyone you think is going to be, uh, find, this, find this useful. Um, but we've got about 20 minutes to go, so let's get cracking onto the next question straight away. Um, Ilian has um, asked a question, have you ever had a mentor? What was your biggest lesson? Do you know what? Um, this is so really strange and really timely because I am in the process of actually looking for a mentor. I believe that no matter where you are um, in your journey as a business owner, and I am quite, you know, very, very proud of the fact that I run a, uh, you know, a, a company that I've taken a multi six figures in just 18 months. Um, but I think you can always have somebody um, above you that's been there, done that, got the T-shirt. Uh, and actually the person, I, I, I have a few people that have reached out to me and said, oh, you know, why don't you look for people within your industry? But actually that isn't what I want at all. I've had men, like unofficial mentors in the past, people that I've worked with, people that I can go to, people I can ask questions of um, and get their feedback on, you know, because they've, you know, run million, you know, multi-million pound um, mortgage agencies or mortgage brokerages, etc. Um, and I've been able to go to them because I've worked for them before or whatever it might be. Um, but I think that actually, a lot of the stuff that you might want to look for in a mentor is actually somebody that can that can is doing what you where you want to be in the future. And for me, um, it's a, it's multi businesses. Um, at the moment, we're in the in the process of setting up our, our second business, um, and further down the line, there is options for two or three others that I'm looking at at the moment um, that may even come to fruition by the end of this year, one of which actually has kind of moved up the scale quite quickly recently because suddenly it's become more of a thing and I'm thinking, okay, I need to jump on this very, very quickly. Um, but all of those businesses are there to generate profit um, and those profits will go into buying income generating assets, i.e. property. And it's the, then those profits, though the, the, what the property portfolio makes is what my future salary is basically going to be. Um, and that's how I want to build my uh, build my my business um, group of businesses, essentially. And so I'm looking for people that have done that. Um, which actually is quite niche. Um, so it's not necessarily someone that's run a, a mortgage brokerage, it's someone that's run successful businesses um, and had income generating assets purchased for investment purposes on the side um, and run that type of um, thing. So I've, I've got a shortlist of a couple of people that I, will, I am reaching out to and discussing that. But it's weird because at the same time, I feel that to my, a lot of my younger clients in particular, or a lot of my, my newer investor clients in particular, I kind of almost act a little bit like a mentor for them because I'm able to impart the knowledge that I've learned from working with some of the country's best investors onto them. I'm not just here as a human calculator. As I said to a potential new client that I spoke to today, my job to start with is to talk about structure of particular deals, 
and then work out which type of lenders are going to fill the voids in the various different things that we're doing and talk long term in terms of strategy. The actual part of um, you know, putting together the application forms and, and getting all the documents together and stuff like that. That's not really one of my fortes. Um, I promoted uh, one of my administrators, Ruby, recently to the role of operations manager because that is her forte. She's an incredible, uh, her attention to detail is insane. Um, her underwriting skills are amazing. And that's what she does at Grand Union Finance. Her job is to do that. So I'm, I can then focus on what I'm I'm really, really good at. Um, and, and that is speaking to my clients, um, you know, sh sharing my knowledge, sharing my understanding of this in, in, in um, of this industry, and you know, helping as many people as I possibly can, whilst then having a back end service that actually allows for the finance financing of these things to actually happen. Um, Elian, could you men uh, mentor me? I would, I would love to. We've already had a really lovely discussion, and um, for all those listening, Elian is uh, is an amazing potential future customer client. Um, and has a big, big future, I think, in front of her. She's got her head screwed on, and um, yeah, big things from her, I am sure. Um, but always happy to help, always happy to, I mean, look, this is why I do this every single week. I love answering you guys' questions, um, and even when it isn't necessarily just talking about um, finance, you know, I, I've, I've had, a, I'm relatively new to the business game, but um, I love it, and it's something that I feel I've got a knack for, and certainly, as I said, I've taken Grand Union from zero to, to multi six figures in 18 months. Um, and, you know, the sky's the limit. And I want to repeat that with various other other companies that I find really interesting. Building companies is fascinating. It's so much fun. Um, so there we go. So cool. Um, Ilian, hopefully that was uh, that was useful to you. Um, let's get back on to the questions. Um, so MK Vivian has asked. Uh, this may be a silly question. There is no such thing as a silly question. So I'm absolutely sure this will not be. I'm in the process of buying my first property, but as a buy to let, yay. However, when I'm ready to move out, can my first residential property be shared ownership? That's a really, really good question. And one that, do you know what? Um, I don't think I've ever come across that scenario before um, where one of my clients has done that. But I can't see a reason why it would be an issue, if I'm completely honest with you, because there are no restrictions, as far as I'm aware, when you're buying a shared ownership property um, as to you having to be a first time buyer. Because if you are, if say, let's say you, you buy a shared ownership property, okay? You don't have to buy to let, we're just talking, you just got your shared ownership. You could sell that property and then buy another shared ownership property and that'd be fine. So just because you own another property, I don't believe, and look, don't take my word for it, this might be something to research on, but I can't see any reason why that's gonna, that's gonna infringe you. One thing I will say, however, um, MK Vivian, is if you can avoid buying a shared ownership property, do so. Now, a lot of people use shared ownership as a way of getting on the, on the, the property ladder, and I completely understand why that is the case, but you're already on the property ladder. You're going to be a buy-to-let investor. You're going to get income. Now, I personally adhere to the school of thought that in the UK, we are um, we are overly obsessed. Or we have been overly obsessed with being homeowners. No one has a God-given right to be a homeowner. And I do believe that one of the things that the government gets slightly wrong um, is that they keep pushing this help to buy. We need people to be homeowners. It's not fair that you know the next generation are not homeowners in the UK. Well, actually... Being a homeowner is not the be all and end all. Having a massive amount of debt to your name, you know, and a, and a residential mortgage is the worst debt you're ever gonna have, okay? It's, it's gonna be the one that you're paying for. No one else is paying for it. Buy to let mortgage, someone else is paying that. Your, rest, your, your tenant's paying that. Um, and 
do you know what? If you rent and you have a great quality of life and you're happy, then why do you need to be a property owner? Um, so I think that the, 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 there seems to be this like generational thing that every year it's like, right, you know, we've got we've got we've got to build loads of properties. We've got to help first time buyers. Yeah, do you know what? Why don't you help first time investors? Why don't you say to people actually buying a property because we have a massive deficit in rental properties here in the UK, especially in London um, at the moment. So I, mean, I think there's, uh, somebody said to me recently that the uh, that we need 83,000 additional rental homes every single year to keep up with demand. That to me says that if the if the government do not intervene in that regard, that's more important because if you can't rent and you can't buy, then there's a problem. If you can't buy, you can rent. And if you if there's a problem with if there's a rental deficit, and we're already going through a bit of a um, you know a, a, a cost of living crisis at the moment, which I genuinely believe is a bit of a problem. Um, what happens if your rent just starts going astronomical as well? Because a the, the you know landlords are passing on um, a lot of their their additional costs to to tenants, as particularly um, HMO tenants, you know, where the the landlords are generally paying the bills and all that kind of stuff. Um, but then what happens? Um, what happens to that rent when actually instead of just having for every every property that goes on the market, you've got potentially ten tenants that apply for it? What happens when you've got twenty? What happens when you've got thirty? This is why our property market keeps rising and rising in this property in this in this uh, country because we have a supply and demand deficit well the supply and demand deficit in the rental sector is as high as it's ever been right now okay so the government should not be focusing on trying to build loads of properties what they should be doing is giving developers as many tax breaks as possible to help them build properties stop with this whole social housing thing uh, private social housing stuff right when you build over 10 properties you've got to you know have 20 you know another um you know what whatever it is over 10 needs to be social housing or percentage needs to be social housing and you need this greenery here and all that kind of stuff no if you want to build houses you make it as easy for house builders to build houses as you possibly can and then in turn what you also do is you help um, private landlords create amazing homes for people that they can rent out because there are a lot of people in this country that will never be able to no matter what the government intervention is no matter what they do no matter what help to buy scheme they bring in there there are some people in this country that are never going to be able to own their own home and they need to be aware that that's completely okay okay because otherwise you're just going to make people feel shit when they can't they can't buy their own home when actually it doesn't matter it does not matter. They should be making it easier for first-time buyers to invest in property without having to own their own home first. They should also be helping landlords, not hindering landlords. They should be making landlords be professional in what they do, but then they should be helping landlords that are professional by giving them tax breaks, by giving them incentives, by helping them with their bills, by doing all this kind of stuff to create amazing homes for people, okay? So, you can tell that I'm quite passionate about this. Maybe I'll do a YouTube video about this at some point. I'm sure they'll get that will get loads. If you, I can come on here, all you guys, you know, you follow me and stuff, and you know what I talk about. But when I put stuff on YouTube, it goes to it mainly goes to new audiences. So generally speaking, you guys are really nice to me. <laughs> but people on YouTube that like, if I say something that's a little bit against the grain, I was like, oh, you're just, you know, landlords are greedy bastards. You know, you can't support them. They're just fat cats. Well, actually, ninety-seven percent of them aren't. Um, actually, and although, can I tell you something funny? Um, I think that this came up on my podcast with Jack Wicks recently. I, I don't get involved in Twitter chat all that often. Um, if you are on Twitter, you can go and follow me at the Sam Norris. Um, I do chat about property occasionally when I'm not talking about Saracens. Um, and um, 
TikTok is also for that too. Oh, I don't go on TikTok all that often um, just because I get loads of negative feedback on there um, and I'm not actually that good at dancing. Um, I've got a beautiful singing voice. No, I haven't. Um, <laughs> but, but, but dancing is not really my thing. Um, so what was I going to say? Yeah, so I get a lot of like weird weird sort of ne negative feedback if ever I say anything a little bit a little bit weird on um on YouTube but um if you're also going to want to go and follow me and subscribe on YouTube please do type in my name Sam Norris and you will find my channel there's like 185 videos or something on there so there we go um Vivian did I did I answer your question I'm not 100 <laughs> I'm not really sure if I answered it or not um basically if you want to be a first time uh first time investor first time buyer go for it there are lenders out there they're not that many but there are lenders out there and you can do it and to be quite honest with you why not um go and be an investor I know loads of investors that own loads of property and then they rent their own home why not there we go Beth gives me uh some good feedback all the time yes big time good thank you guys and Ilian's also jumping in with some positive comments as well so thank you so much guys always make oh you're amazing oh you're amazing too no you're amazing no you're amazing um yeah this is what this has been like this is another reason I freaking love Instagram because it's a really positive place actually I think social media gets a bad rep doesn't it um I described social media recently to somebody as, has anyone watching this ever seen the film The Mask with Jim Carrey in it? It's quite an old film now, 1994 maybe, 93, 94. Um, and basically he puts on this mask, he goes green, turns into a cartoon character and everyone believes that that mask turns everyone into cartoon characters. It doesn't, it exacerbates what is already inside you and Jim Carrey's character really liked cartoons and comic books and stuff like that. And so it turned him into that type of person. Um, well, social media is exactly the same. If you're a knob, social media will make you look even more like a knob. If you're an angry person, it makes you more angry. If you're a sad person, it makes you more sad. If you're happy and positive and you want to give positive influence to people and put positivity out into the atmosphere, then social media will exacerbate that trait in you, okay? And this is why I get so frustrated when people start bad-mouthing social media. Kids these days, all they do is look at their phone. Well, great. Because that's where the fucking future's going, okay? We're all, we're all going to be on social media. We're all going to be in the metaverse. We're all going to do this kind of stuff. It's just the way that the world is going. So let's embrace the positivity that social media can actually bring to the world in terms of connecting us. I have people that I talk to and I'm connected with live in Canada, Australia, um, Lagos. I was speaking to somebody in Lagos the other day. Dubai, you know, and, and this actually brings the world closer together. And if you want to be positive about it, then you will reap the, the positivity back. I don't follow anyone that does, isn't positive. If I see someone post something negative, they, they're gone. I don't follow them anymore. I made a pledge on Facebook about seven years ago that I was never gonna post about anything negative ever again. And I, and I haven't since, and now all I get is positivity. And that's because I give it out. So I have li I, I might have, I've actually got a row of soapboxes here that I've been, I've, I've got to get off one, and then I get on to another one, and I get off that one, and I get on to another one. Right, this 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 Monday Mortgage Mail is turning into like a rant session for me, so I apologise, guys. Um, hopefully you're enjoying it anyway. <laughs> There's 18 of you still on here, so um, so I must be doing something right. Uh, but let's get cracking onto the next couple of questions because we are desperately running out of time. My soapbox sessions um, are getting too bad. So Sam has asked, what would you say the average time to arrange bridging finance for an auction purchase needs to complete within 28 days? Awesome question. This is a great question. Really, really important question. I'm going to answer it because it's so speedy. I'm going to answer it as quickly as I possibly can. Okay, so I always aim for 15 days. That's what my aim is, okay? Because 
Um, when I say 15 days, we're talking 15 working days. Sam has quite rightly said in here that auction purchases need to be completed within 28 days, but 28 days is actually more like 20 working days. Um, I don't know if you ever come across a solicitor that works at weekends. I actually work with one that does respond to my messages at, week, at weekends. Um, but very, very few of them actually do. Um, so you'll, you'll be hard pushed to actually be able to get anything done on a Saturday or a Sunday during the course of your, your auction purchase. So you are going to be restricted to 29, between 19 and 21 days, somewhere in that kind of region, depending on how, you know, depending on what day of the week you get your, um, your auction purchase completed on um, or exchanged on when the hammer comes down. Um, so we've got to, we've got to work within that basis we've got 20 days okay so i aim for 15 now the reason i aim for 15 is because some lenders will get everything done and then last minute they'll go oh forgot to ask you about that can you just send over that document and then that might take a day because you're at work or you're not around or whatever it might be that adds another day on we're now into 16 days we've only got four left it might then take two or three days for the money to actually transfer because the money's got to go from their funding line into their account they've got to send it to their solicitor their solicitor's got to send it to your solicitor your solicitor's got to send it to the auction house the auction house has got to pay the guy that, that you're buying the property from and that could take three or four days in itself so we've got to factor in, you've got to work backwards on this, okay? We've got to factor in all that stuff that's going to happen at the end. We don't want to miss out. Now, generally speaking, you will get 10 days grace at the end, but we don't want to rely on that. And sometimes um, sellers can be arses and go, oh, well, you've missed the deadline. So, you know, you've got to pay me a fee of two grand, whatever. I have seen that happen before. And then you just got to make the decision. You pull out and you lose your deposit or you give them an extra couple of grand to shut up. And generally speaking, most of my clients go for the pay and the two grand to, to make them shut up. So we've got to work backwards. We've got to factor in that last five days. Just give ourselves the buffer that some crap could hit the wall and we need to figure it out. Now, working backwards from there, generally speaking, we can get um, a lot of the work done simultaneously. Now, when you think about a mortgage, mortgage application is quite linear. Decision in principle, full application, underwriting, valuation, offer, legals. With a bridge, we can cover a lot of those off at the same time. So we get we do our sort of initial decision in principle type bit where we get terms from a lender, we sign them, and we're good to go. We then formalise the application with um, an application form and load of documents. And as soon as they they get it uh, get that, the bridging lender will instruct a, a evaluation pretty much straight away. They'll check the the documents for underwriting, and then they'll generally instruct uh, legals as well. And we'll pay their solicitor a small fee to start getting their work underway. So. Legals have already started. Generally, we want legals to be started within about four days of the application coming in, okay? Um, by that stage, we've already got a date in the diary for the valuation to happen. We're gonna put pressure on the valuer to get the report back within 24 hours of him actually doing the, the survey, or her doing the survey, I should say. Um, and they will, they will get that back. So generally speaking, within a week of the full application going in, we really want um, the legals to be underway and the valuation to be at least booked in, if not actually taking place. We then get the report back, that's all signed off, um, and then, we're, then we finish off the legals, and hopefully we've got a ton of, ton of room to spare. So it is all hands on deck, and you have got to pay good people to get involved in doing this. So, you know, bridging lenders aren't the cheapest, but you've got to pay them because that's the only finance you're going to get done in time. Solicitors that have experience of doing this kind of stuff and have the availability to be able to actually put their time and effort into being back and forth, back and forth constantly. I've seen the best in the game solicitor-wise, doing this, um, you know, on these types of deals, and they will be back and forth, back and forth, about six times, seven times a day, 
with with solicitors and you have to have a, a solicitor that understands that that is what the requirement is with a purchase like this you can't just go with a residential solicitor that will you know respond every two or three days to a message we ain't got time for that crap you so you've got to pay somebody a decent whack to actually give them the good service we might have to pay a little bit extra to a surveyor to you know bump us up the priority queue there's all this kind of stuff money talks at the end of the day and that's what we need so that's actually um, how we do it. So from start to finish, Sam, we're looking at 15 working days if we possibly can, 20 worst case scenario, but that is effectively how we do it. So hopefully that was that was helpful. Um, amazing information, Sam. Thanks so much. Ilian's like my biggest fan. I'm so happy. Uh, thank you for the info. Appreciate it. Might be contacting you Wednesday morning. Absolutely no problem at all. Please get in touch. I'm happy to help and obviously really happy that all you guys have jumped on the live this afternoon to uh, to jump on and listen and also interact and ask me some questions. Well, I think we've got one more question to go, um, which is from an epitome of grace. What a beautiful name. If you had money as a young adult, would you buy your first home or go and buy it to rent? Um, I would always invest um, the way that I see it. So I, I, I definitely conscribe, conscribe? Is that the word? Subscribe. Subscribe to the rich dad, poor dad thought process, which is that rich people get other people to pay for their stuff. So they will buy an asset that generates an income relatively passively or at least, um, what do they call it? Begins with R, completely gone from my head. Um, income, income that keeps coming back every, every single month. The, the word will come to me. If any of you can think of the word, let me know. Um, but um, they'll, they'll have an income that keeps coming in every month because they bought an asset that generates that income for them on a monthly basis. That income they will use to buy luxuries and things that don't make them money. And that, that is basically the concept of Rich Dad Poor Dad. If any of you haven't read that book, it is well worth a read. And residual, there we go, residual income. Rich people create residual sources of income, multiple residual sources of income. If you actually think about it, Owning a business, removing yourself from the day-to-day -day operations of that business, that kind of becomes a residual income as well. Now, as much as I love Grand Union Finance, I and I think I'll always be involved, no matter how big it gets, um, I have other, other ventures that I'm working on at the moment where I will become non-operational relatively quickly. And I don't need for it to pay me, you know, 100 grand a year, you know, a couple of grand a month, you know? You build those up and you then have income coming in, recurrent residual income, absolutely. Um, so you build those up and you've got one, one company that makes you a couple of grand, another company might, might make you four or five, another company might make you two or three, another company might make you three or four, and suddenly you've got 10, 15, 20 grand coming in every month with very little input from yourself. You've, built, you've done the work to build these businesses and this is an underrated thing. I think property investors don't think about building businesses. They think about building property. Um, and actually I think build businesses, okay? Then take the income that the businesses give you. So I have a holding company um, that owns all my businesses. Um, and the income that, that I, I, once that income in that company gets to a certain amount, it gets put into an investment company which goes and buys assets and particularly income generating assets. And when, that, when it gets to the point where that company can pay me, a salary each year, which is more than enough for what I need, happy days. And all that happens then is that every time my my holding company pot, because the residual income coming from all the businesses that I own goes into 
that pot that it can then go out, go and buy more property, I basically get a pay rise. And it doesn't matter then if you have to pay tax or whatever. Yeah, obviously I want to be tax efficient all that kind of stuff. But basically that company then just pays me my salary, you know, get it to 50 grand, 60 grand, 70 grand, whatever. I mean, how many people really needs to need to earn more than 70 grand a year? Not that many. I think if you earn 70 grand a year and that you're in the top like 5% of the country or something. So I'm not bothered by that. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't buy clothes. I just wear Grand Union Finance t-shirts all the time. So I think we've gone on, on a bit of a tangent here. But my, my, basically, once that has then happened, that's when I would be thinking about buying myself a home. Because then it probably becomes the right thing to do. Because actually, I could probably buy it and then pay off the mortgage really quickly so that I am debt-free on the mortgage. I don't want a big residential mortgage. I don't believe people should get 95% loan-to-value mortgages. I don't even think people should get 80% loan-to-value mortgages. I think they should get as low loan-to-value mortgages as they possibly can. And they should be patient and they should push back the time. Yes, do you know what? The, pro the home that you're going to buy will be theoretically value, probably valued more in 10 years' time as it will be now. Probably will be. But your ability, if you go, if you follow the structure I've just said, your ability to buy those properties is even easier. So it would be easier for you to buy a million pound property in 10 years than it will be for you to buy a 200,000 pound property now because you get paid 50 grand by a company that takes, you know, a, a third of that in tax and national insurance and you've got the rising cost of living create residual um, and relatively passive sources of income for yourself and you can get yourself to a place where buying that home for yourself and not having and you could put down a massive deposit on it actually becomes so much more easier even though the value of the property is higher it's actually easier for you to buy that kind of i think does that make sense is what i'm saying here actually like it, i don't know if actually it's making any sense at all but anyway um, I'm really glad that the an epitome of grace, which is a lovely name, by the way, aren't, aren't asked, answered, asked me that question because this and this is why this is such a good live session usually because the questions are so good because they don't. It's not just about me answering those questions, it's about using those as a sort of jumping off point to talk about ideas and strategies and, and philosophies. And this that is basically what's happened here. I if I had money as a 21 year old, I wouldn't necessarily be going I need to go and buy my own home I would go and buy um I'll tell you something so I sold I had a um had a really bad breakup years and years and years ago um with an ex we owned a, a flat together that was worth quite a lot of money we sold it um and I must admit I was in a pretty dark place because you know you split up with an ex and you, you get all miserable and melancholy it was actually off the back of that that I made that judgment call earlier on that I said about not putting negative things online anymore because I felt like I was full of negativity and I didn't want to put that on anyone else. I thought that was really unfair. That was for me to deal with. Um, and so I did and I put positivity out and I got positivity back. And that that's ultimately what really helped me get through that really difficult time in my life. But when I sold that property, I made a load of money and I didn't do anything with it. I, I, tra I went traveling around the world for five months, basically, um, on that money. And I had a brilliant time. <laughs> so some amazing things I wouldn't change. But ultimately, when I look back on it now, I should have bought a couple of properties up north, making me, you know, five, six hundred pounds a month. That would have been a nice little income for me and, and, and happy days. And that's what I should have done. But I didn't. And it's fine. And the things are as they are. But if I had my time again, that's probably what I would do. I, if I had money to invest in a property, I would invest it in, in a property where someone else lives in it, not me. I would stay and live with my parents or I would live with a friend or I would rent a room somewhere and I would live in the tiniest means possible. I said to, to Emily and her mum over the weekend, we were talking about living places and I said, if I was single, I'd live in a studio flat. 
keep my I would keep my outgoings to the bare minimum. Um, I would keep my everything to the bare minimum because really my focus is building my businesses, building my infrastructure, building my asset base, um, and that would be where my focus is. Um, not owning the place that I live in because ultimately, I don't really care. Um, I will one day, I'm sure. Um, but I'd much rather not have to worry about money than have to worry about paying my mortgage every month. If that makes sense. Anywho, I'm gonna get unphilosophical. Um, as hopefully that was really helpful, guys. It was a very philosophical e e episode actually today. Um, episode 84. 84 is actually one of my lucky numbers because I was born in 1984. So, um, so yeah, perhaps that's what happened in this episode. I got a little bit philosophical in front of all of you. Um, but guys, thank you ever so much for sticking around for the flower um, for this Q and A. I think I've really, really enjoyed this one. Actually, this one's been a good one. Um, so if you did miss any of this. Um, this will be going onto my feed very, very shortly once we finish up here. So you can rewind, you can watch from the beginning, check out any of the questions that were asked throughout the course of this. Um, hopefully, fingers crossed, if um, if Instagram allows me to download this video, I will also be putting it up onto my Game of Loans podcast for you to listen to as of tomorrow morning. So if you don't subscribe to the Game of Loans podcast already, please do so. And if you already do, can I ask you a massive favour? Please go on as soon as we finish this session, as soon as I click the X in the top right hand corner, please go on to iTunes or Spotify, wherever it might be. And please, 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 can you give it a review? Because it really helps me grow that podcast. And I just want as many people to listen to the incredible value that my guests give um, as often as I possibly can. So um, guys, thank you so, so much for your amazing questions um, and for giving up an hour of your, your Monday afternoon to spend it with me. It really means a lot. Um, but thanks ever so much. Have an awesome week. And I will catch you on the next episode, episode 85. Can you believe it? Episode 85 of the Monday Mortgage Mount coming to you next Monday at 5pm. See you there, peeps. Yep, that's it. Thank you so much for sticking around to the end of the episode, guys. If you have enjoyed this episode or any of the other Game of Loans podcast episodes, please, I would ask you a massive favor to leave a five-star review. It massively helps me grow the podcast and reach more people that will hopefully enjoy the episodes as much as you have. Thank you so much in advance for this, and I'll hopefully see you on the next episode.